A big welcome back, everyone, to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode Number 5. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was produced for the hair loss practitioner. And for all those who wish to dive into the fascinating and ever-changing world of hair loss. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for people with all different types of hair loss. Each week I'll review a handful of different studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and I'll give you my thoughts on just how a given study might change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in all different types of hair loss. Androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, scarring alopecia, chemotherapy-induced hair loss, trichotillomania. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was produced by the Donovan Hair Academy, and it was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss. It was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. Today, it's my great pleasure to review five studies with you. For those of you who want a brief five to ten minute overview, a mini podcast within our longer podcast, well, we'll begin that in under 30 seconds. And for those of you who want a bit more detail, detail that will allow you to incorporate some of these new studies into your own practice, well, you and I will dive into those together. Thanks so much for joining me on this journey. The third Monday of each month is dedicated to scarring alopecia, and today I will review with you five studies in the area of scarring alopecia. I'll begin first with a study by Onamusi and colleagues from the Archives of Dermatologic Research in May 2023. Have you ever wondered what factors are associated with good outcomes in central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia? Well, this nice study shows us that natural hairstyles, use of hooded dryers, and the use of metformin in those with diabetes is associated with good outcomes in CCCA, and those with scaling and pustules may have a worsening. This is data from a retrospective study of about 100 patients followed for a year or longer. So we'll take a look at this very nice study of CCCA, a type of scarring alopecia that commonly affects black women. Then we'll take a look at a study by Jackson and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology from July, looking at CCCA in males. Do you see CCCA in male patients? Well, it's certainly not very common. The authors here report 17 males with CCCA, and 82% of them didn't have high-risk hair care practices, such as braids, locks, cornrows, relaxers. But two of these 17 patients had locks, braids, or cornrows, one had used chemical relaxers, and one had a history of hair coloring. So a nice study documenting the existence of CCCA in males and some of the epidemiologic factors that go along with CCCA in males. And the authors raise the possibility that CCCA in males may be underdiagnosed. And there's a number of reports coming out now looking at CCCA in males. This is by far the largest of these types of studies. 
And then we'll go on to look at a nice study by Mello and colleagues in Dermatology, Practical and Conceptual, July 2023. Do you look at the hairs that you pull out during a pull test? Well, sometimes we do, and we assume they're telogen hairs, and the vast majority of times they are telogen hairs, but very occasionally they are anagen hairs. One of the times that you pull out anagen hairs from a routine pull test is when your patient has scarring alopecia. And this very nice study looks at a patient with lichen planopilaris and documents a positive antigen pull test. And we'll take a look at this nice report together, a nice reminder that not all hairs that come out of the scalp are telogen hairs on clinical examination. Sometimes they are antigen hairs, and if they are pretty normal antigen hairs with a bulky root sheath around them, you may want to consider a scarring alopecia. Then we'll take a look at a very nice study looking at the relationship between erosive pustular dermatosis and skin cancer. Do you see patients with erosive pustular dermatosis who have histories of non-melanoma skin cancer? Do you see them develop non-melanoma skin cancer? Well, prior studies in the literature have been small. Case reports. A study last year had six patients. But here we have 80 patients, 53 males, 27 females, mostly white patients. 50% had a history of skin cancer before their diagnosis of erosive pustular dermatosis. 50% developed skin cancer after their diagnosis of erosive pustular dermatosis. 77% of those cancers after diagnosis were squamous cell carcinomas, 15.9% were basal cells, and 5% were atypical fibrosanthomas. 28% had more than one skin cancer. And in 50% of patients who developed a skin cancer, the cancer appeared in the first three years. And so we'll take a look at this very nice study looking at this relationship between erosive pustular dermatosis of the scalp and skin cancer. This is a very large study, the largest of its kind so far, and really gives us a lot of valuable information and reminds us that we should probably be performing surveillance in patients with erosive pustular dermatosis because skin cancer can develop in quite a large proportion of patients. And then we'll go on to look finally at a study by Sarkis and colleagues in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology in August 2023, looking at folliculitis decalvans in females. Do you see folliculitis decalvans in females? Well, certainly it can occur in males and females. It occurs in males just slightly more commonly than in females, but it certainly occurs in females. One of the largest studies to date was a study in 2015 by Dr. Vano and colleagues from Spain. A nice study of 82 patients, 52 male and 30 female patients. That study suggested that males and females had a similar course for the most part, but folliculitis decalvans in males tended to occur at a younger age. Males were more likely to have androgenetic hair loss and more likely to have pustules. 
This study by Sarkis that I'd like to review with you describes Folliculitis decalvans in 150 female patients. It's a multi-center study from over 10 countries. The average age of patients here was 38.9, 88% had Caucasian hair, 12% had Afro-textured hair. In 81% of patients, the vertex was involved, 42% had involvement of the mid-scalp, and the point of this paper is to raise the possibility that folliculitis decalvans in females is more symptomatic, more severe, more widespread on the scalp. And they come to those proposals by reviewing their data with the data from Dr. Vagno's study. And so we'll take a look at Dr. Vagno's study from 2015, and we'll take a look at this new study by Sarkis and colleagues in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology, fresh off the press, August 2023. And the references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So we'll begin by a study by Anamusi and colleagues in the Archives of Dermatological Research, May 2023. So central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia is a condition that more commonly occurs in women with afro-textured hair. And some of the old literature suggests that maybe 2%, 3%, 5% of black women will develop CCCA, but more recent studies suggest that it may be up to 25% of black women may develop CCCA. But that old literature continues to be quoted time after time again, even in our new studies and the introductory sentences of many of our current, current papers start out by CCCA occurs in 2 to 4% of black women. And nobody really wants to take the bold step to leap and say, our current evidence suggests that CCCA occurs in up to 25% of black women. And I think we need to take that leap because that's probably the more accurate data. But the authors of this study set out to determine factors that are associated with good treatment outcomes. What factors are likely to predict a patient who has a good outcome with treatment? So the authors performed a retrospective chart review of 100 patients who had been treated for at least 12 months. 50% of patients were stable after one year, 36% improved, and 14% worsened. The factors associated with having an improvement were following. No history of thyroid disease. Using metformin if you had diabetes. Using hooded dryers. Wearing natural hairstyles. And being healthy. Having no other physical signs besides scarring alopecia. And so those are the factors associated with good outcomes, particularly helpful information, natural hairstyles, hooded dryers, use of metformin in the setting of diabetes predicts good outcomes. The factors associated with a worsening, having worse hair loss after one year, was the presence of scaling and the presence of pustules. So all in all, I like this study. I like this study first because it brings up the Use of metformin for treating CCCA. Here, metformin was used in the setting of diabetes, so patients with CCCA that had diabetes. But it brings up the topic of metformin use in CCCA, even in women that don't have diabetes. And 
Topical metformin has received quite a bit of attention in CCCA. And this comes from a study in 2020 from JAD Case Reports titled Hair Regrowth in Two Patients with Recalcitrant Central Centrifugal Cicatricial Alopecia After Use of Topical Metformin. So this was a nice study in 2020. It was one of our top 20 studies of 2020. Metformin is a common medication. It's an old medication. It's a relatively inexpensive medication. And it's used for treatment of diabetes, but it does more than just affect blood sugars. It can impact inflammation. It can promote the development of a more favorable gut microbiota. And it may have antifibrotic effects as well. And this nice study in JAD case reports from 2020, which I'll put the reference in our show notes, documented two patients with an improvement with topical 10% metformin in lipoderm cream. One patient had quite a nice improvement, and one patient had a very slight improvement. And since 2020, there have not been any studies in the literature following up documenting the use of topical metformin in CCCA, which is surprising and disappointing. And I have used topical metformin quite a bit in the last three years since this study came out. And results are quite varied. Many patients don't have any benefit with topical metformin, and some appear to. And so I don't think we're quite there yet in understanding the role of metformin in CCCA, but it clearly has some role. And this nice study in the Archives of Dermatologic Research shows us that use of metformin in those with diabetes, use of hooded dryers, and the use of natural hairstyles was associated with a good outcome. And so it brings us back to the topic of metformin yet again, that should we be studying metformin more than perhaps we are now, or should we be perhaps reporting our data. I think this is really valuable. There's a lot in CCCA that we don't understand. There's some evidence that diabetes is increased in CCCA, but some studies suggest that it's not. And so clearly we need some good studies about the use of metformin in CCCA, but I really liked this particular study. I certainly advise my own patients to consider doing less for at least 6 to 12 months if they have a diagnosis of CCCA. Wearing hair naturally, limiting the use of relaxers, both chemical and heat. And that's open to some debate. Not all practitioners feel that way. But it does appear that CCCA is due to some underlying genetics of which some of it hasn't been worked out well, but we understand a little bit about it. But there seems to be some trauma to the hair follicle along with that genetic predisposition that sets the ball rolling to develop CCCA. And that trauma may be different for different patients. It may be chemicals, it may be heat, it may be other factors that cause hair follicle trauma and lead to the steps that cause scarring alopecia. But very nice study. 
We move on now to another study in CCCA, now a study of CCCA in males by Jackson and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, July 2023. One of the largest studies of CCCA in males. Now, CCCA more commonly occurs in females, but it can occur in males. And this study seeks to describe some of the demographic features of CCCA in males. In this study, they describe 17 males, ages ranging from 30 to 72. Most patients were Black or African American. What the authors point out here is that 82% of patients didn't have a history of high-risk hair care practices like relaxers, braids, cornrows. But two patients had a history of locks, braids, cornrows. One had a history of chemical relaxer or texturizer use, and one had a history of hair coloring. None of the patients in this study had type 2 diabetes, which has been proposed to be an associated factor in some studies, but not all studies in women. Three patients had a history of latent tuberculosis. Hard to know what to make of that, but it's interesting and three of 17 patients that there was a history of latent tuberculosis. Whether that has relevance is not entirely clear. The location was classic in eight patients, sort of vertex, but several patients had an atypical location, including three patients with CCCA in the occipital zone, two with more posterior vertex locations, two with patchy hair loss, one with diffuse. 60% had scalp itching, 17% had bleeding, 2% had redness, and almost a quarter had scalp pain and tenderness. Pathology showed the typical findings, loss of sebaceous glands, perifollicular fibrosis, perifollicular inflammation, eccentric thinning of the the root sheath, outer root sheath. And sometimes we see premature desquamation of the internal root sheath. But a really nice study which reminds us that CCCA can occur in black males. And we need to keep this on the differential diagnosis of central or vertex hair loss. And many of these patients with CCCA may at first have an appearance of androgenetic hair loss, and there may be androgenetic hair loss as well. But a patient with what appears to be androgenetic hair loss, who has itching and tenderness, you may want to think about CCCA. There may be coexistent seborrheic dermatitis, which confuses the picture because that can give itching, scaling, redness. But I really think you want to have a low threshold to biopsies for patients with central hair loss with accompanying afrotextured hair. I think that's really, really important. There are some cases of CCCA which are quite clear-cut, but there's many that are not, especially the early stages. And I think a low threshold to doing biopsies really can pick up a lot of CCCA in the earliest stages. The presence of a biopsy report with loss of sebaceous glands, with perifollicular fibrosis, perifollicular inflammation is extremely helpful especially the loss of sebaceous glands. The more confusing thing is that there is some thought in the literature that not all CCCA, especially early CCCA, has loss of sebaceous glands. So what do we do in those situations? 
Well, a pathologist that reads a lot of hair pathology can sometimes give some suggestions about early CCCA with eccentric thinning of the outer root sheath, premature desquamation of the inner root sheath, the degree of fibrosis present in the scalp. All these things with an as astute pathologist can really go a long way to diagnosing CCCA in the earliest stages. But the vast majority of biopsies do have loss of sebaceous glands. And so if you have a patient with what appears to be androgenetic hair loss and they have itching and burning and tenderness, and you think it's androgenetic hair loss with seborrheic dermatitis, consider doing a biopsy. If the biopsy comes back loss of sebaceous glands, well, there's a good chance you're dealing with CCCA. Of course, you might be dealing with folliculitis decalvans, you might be dealing with lichen planopilaris, but you're probably dealing with a scarring alopecia. Please give a low threshold to performing biopsies. So the authors here remind us that CCCA can present with scalp symptoms, like burning, itching, and tenderness in many patients, but not in all patients. But not all patients have a history of these high-risk hair care practices, like braids, cornrows, chemical relaxers. And the histology often shows loss of sebaceous glands, but may not in all cases. So, one of our largest case series of CCCA in males to date. Really like this. And a lot more reports of CCCA in males are coming out, and you'll see many in the literature when you dive in. This happens to be the largest. So we go on now to a nice study by Mello and colleagues. Positive antigen pull test predicting lichen planopilaris activity in dermatology, practical and conceptual, July 2023. So you know that hair grows in the antigen phase, and then it sheds in the exogen phase. Normally, we do not see antigen hairs when we pull hairs gently on a person's scalp when we're seeing them in the clinic. The hairs that a patient sees in the shower, on their brush, on their clothing, in their food, in their refrigerator, those are generally telogen hairs. It's rare to see antigen hairs. Even patients who think they have antigen hairs, it's rare that they're antigen hairs. I make it a habit of looking at hairs that patients bring in or send in or mail in, and I make it a habit of looking at hairs in the clinic. You can simply take a hair, use your dermatoscope to look at the hair and tell if it's an antigen hair or a telogen hair. An antigen hair generally has its root sheath around it. It has this big, bulky, whitish material symmetrically encircling the hair. It's not the gunky, sticky stuff that may be seen with sebocoriasis or a highly inflammatory reaction on the scalp where you can get gunk stuck to the scalp. This is a symmetrical, whitish, milky whitish material around the hair shaft, and that's the external root sheath. If you want to see an antigen hair, you can simply reach up and pull one of your own hairs out, but you'll have to pull really hard. But if you pull really hard and you see a hair with 
kind of a whitish blob at the end. That's probably an antigen hair, provided you pulled hard enough. If you were very gentle, is a good chance it's a telogen hair. But if you pull hard, and then take your dermatoscope and look at that hair, you'll see an antigen hair. It's a great way to learn what an antigen hair is. But we don't normally see antigen hairs if we gently pull patients' scalps. But this nice report by Mello describes a 32-year-old male with lichen plano pilaris. The authors did a pull test, and what was revealed on the pull test was antigen hairs. It's a very nice short report, free online. Do check it out. And you can see trichoscopy of lichen plano pilaris showing the typical perifollicular scaling. And you can see these nice antigen hairs that the authors remove from the scalp with their whitish, grayish material around the hair shaft. Relatively symmetrical. In other words, the blobby material on one side is pretty much the same as the blobby material on the other side. So it's not just debris, it's actually cellular material. And the patient had a biopsy confirming lichen plano pilaris. And so the authors here remind us that the extraction of antigen hairs is not common. And if you see antigen hairs, then you may want to consider a scarring alopecia. What I would add here is relatively normal looking antigen hairs. It's true you can pull out antigen hairs in loose antigen hair syndrome, but those don't even look like antigen hairs. And so if you pull out normal antigen hairs that look just like the hair you're going to pull out when you practice, you may wonder about a scarring alopecia. And so the inflammation that's part of the scarring process facilitates the release of antigen hairs. This inflammation that surrounds the hair, surrounds the outer root sheath, and the interface dermatitis that you see on biopsies makes it pretty difficult for hairs to grow. And the antigen hairs leave. They leave the scalp because it's hard to grow. So I really like this report. I would like to remind you, though, there's several possible findings when you do a pull test in a patient with active lichen plano pilaris. So the patient has active disease. You may get a negative pull test. You may get a negative pull test. So a negative pull test doesn't mean the disease isn't active. You may get a positive pull test with antigen hairs. You may get a positive pull test with telogen hairs. Sometimes patients with active lichen plano pilaris shed more telogen hairs. That's why they come into clinic saying, I'm shedding, I'm shedding, I'm shedding. Or you may have a positive pull test with antigen and telogen hairs. So do keep that in mind. A negative pull test doesn't mean the LPP isn't active. But a positive pull test with antigen hairs coming out always means the scarring alopecia is active. But a negative pull test does not mean the scarring alopecia is quiet. You can have patients with a negative pull test, and you look up at the scalp, and there's all this scale around the hairs, or there, there's redness around the hairs. Or the patient says, my scalp is so itchy, it's so tender, it's burning. Well, that patient has active LPP. It doesn't matter what the pull test shows. They have active LPP. Do take a look at the hairs that come out. I would encourage you just to look at the hairs that come out routinely in your patient's 
you'll see telogen hair, telogen hair, telogen hair, telogen hair, telogen hair. And then once in a blue moon, you'll see a hair that is strange. That may be an antigen hair. It may be a, a hair that is a hair that is associated with another inflammatory condition. It may be a hair that is a loose antigen hair. It may be a manilothrix-like hair in alopecia areata. It may be a broken hair. But by getting in the habit of just looking at hairs that you gently remove from the scalp with your trichoscope, it can be really valuable. Years ago, when you would do a pull test, you would put it on a glass slide, you'd run to the microscope, and you'd take a look at these hairs. But nowadays, you can just put the hair on your hand, take your trichoscope or your dermatoscope, look at the hair, and tell immediately what, what it is. It takes a matter of seconds. If the hair has something attached to it, spend some time figuring out what that something is. Is it the outer root sheath of an antigen hair? Is it crusting or scale or material or da from dandruff or seborrheic dermatitis or seborrheic or some inflammatory condition, rip-roaring allergic contact dermatitis? Spend some time figuring out what that material is. So we move on now to a nice study by Shamlul and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, June 2023, titled Incidents and time to development of malignancies arising on the scalp of patients with erosive pustular dermatosis based on sex, a retrospective analysis. I really like this study. Let me remind you a bit about erosive pustular dermatosis. It's an inflammatory scalp condition that can be scarring, and so it's classified as a type of scarring alopecia. Typically occurs in patients 60, 70, and 80 but can occur in much younger age groups. Patients often present with crusting on the scalp and erosions and often sterile pustules. And when you remove those crusts, you see all this pus that is left behind. And when you first see a patient with erosive pustular dermatosis, your first thought is, this must be a, a cancer. It's so scaly and crusted. Or you might wonder if it's an infection. This must be some kind of fungal infection, or this is something I haven't seen. And when you press on these lesions, the pus comes out from underneath. And there may be erosions on the scalp. That's erosive dermatosis. There are many triggers of erosive dermatosis, including infections, trauma, inflammation, topical therapies, and oral medications, these are triggers that are thought to facilitate the development of erosipustular dermatosis. In 10 to 15% of cases, erosipustular dermatosis may be due to an infection, like zoster, shingles. In 25% of cases, there may be a history of trauma, like surgery, liquid nitrogen, burns, skin grafting, hair transplants. Inflammation might trigger the disease, like inflammation from contact dermatitis from a hairpiece, or inflammation from radiation or a sunburn. Topical therapies like umiquimod for treating skin cancer, 
Topical minoxidil has been reported, topical tretinoin, topical latanoprost, and a variety of drugs or medications can also trigger erosive pustular dermatosis, nivolumab, gefitinib, and, and others. So there's been diagnostic criteria that have been proposed for erosive pustular dermatosis. There's a trophic or sun-damaged skin with erosion, erosions or pustules or scales and crusts. No specific pathology. No infectious agent. You've ruled out mimicking conditions. It has a chronic course leading to scarring alopecia. And it generally has a really good response to topical clobetazole, strong class 1 steroids. So in some ways, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. You want to rule out a variety of mimicking conditions, for which there's several. But it's important to be aware that you don't just biopsy erosive pustular dermatosis and say to the pathologist, is this erosive pustular dermatosis? Because it doesn't have a specific histopathology. So the pathologist may say, if you're thinking erosive pustular dermatosis, this very well could be. It responds incredibly well to clobetazole, as well as other treatments have been described, calcineurin inhibitors. But the response, even in a month, can be dramatic, with clobetazole used twice daily, along with shampoos that help lift scale, including salicylic acid-based shampoos with warm compresses to encourage this scale to come off. The response can be just dramatic. There's been reports of an association between erosive pustular dermatosis and skin cancer. And so a general rule is when I see patients with erosive pustular dermatosis, I want to see them back in one month to see if they've had a dramatic improvement with my treatment because that's what I expect. It's true that patients can have relapses of the disease, but the response after one month is really important because that helps me with the diagnosis. If a patient doesn't respond well, and they've been using their medication, I need to consider the possibility that maybe just maybe this isn't erosive pustular dermatosis. Second, I need to see the patient back because close follow-up and surveillance is really important. Why? Because some of these patients may develop skin cancer of various kinds. And you need to get a patient with erosive pustular dermatosis into a program of surveillance. So I see them back at one month. If they're doing great, I'll see them back at three to five months. And then I'll see them back at six and twelve or 12 months, depending on the exact situation, but often close surveillance. A study in dermatologic therapy last year reported six patients with non-melanoma skin cancer associated with erosive pustular dermatosis of the scalp. Nick Benabor and colleagues reported this study of six patients via their retrospective chart view. The six patients had a mean age of 82, ranged from 65 to 92. Five of the six patients had lighter skin types. Four patients had a prior history of non-melanoma skin cancer, but six developed skin cancer after their diagnosis. In four, it was squamous cell carcinoma, and in two, it was basal cell carcinoma. That was a nice study, and is similar to other reports that have dotted the literature, small studies, case reports, and there has been 
reports and anecdotal sharing of information that some patients with erosipustular dermatosis have had non-melanoma skin cancers that have been metastatic and have led to the death of the patient. But studies have been small, and the exact relationship hasn't been really clear. But here we have a study by Shamlul and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in June, reporting a very nice study, a retrospective study of their data with erosipustular dermatosis. So they set out to evaluate the incidence and the time to development of malignancies in patients with erosipustular dermatosis. They looked at data from the year 2000 to 2021, and they included 80 patients. A very large study, the largest of its kind to date. 53 males, 27 females. Most patients were white, 77 of those 80 patients. About one half had a diagnosis of malignancy before their diagnosis of erosipustular dermatosis, a common theme. We saw in the previous study in dermatologic therapy by Negbenabur that about half come in with a, a prior history. Not surprising, these are generally patients that are a little bit older with lighter colored skin. Many will have histories of skin cancer. But 55% of patients developed a skin cancer after their diagnosis of erosipustular dermatosis. Most patients were males. 72%, of the patients that developed a skin cancer were males. And of the cancers, three-quarters were squamous cell carcinomas. 15.9% were basal cell carcinomas. Atypical fibrosanthoma was present in 5% or 2 patients, and 1 patient had pleomorphic dermal sarcoma. Just over a quarter of patients had more than one skin cancer, 28.8%. The median time to the diagnosis of malignancy was about 2.4 years for males and 3.2 years for females. And there was no statistical difference between the time to develop a skin cancer in those who had a skin cancer before their diagnosis of erosipustular dermatosis compared to those that didn't have a diagnosis before. So a really interesting study, a large study, 80 patients, very different than prior studies in the literature with six patients and two patients and one patient. Males seem to have a higher risk than females for developing skin cancer in the setting of erosipustular dermatosis. Most are squamous cells, but basal cells and other skin cancers can arise. The one thing that I teach physicians who work with me is EPDS stands for erosipustular dermatosis of the scalp. The literature is trying to decide, should we call erosipustular dermatosis EPD or EPDS? I like erosipustular dermatosis of the scalp, EPDS, because it reminds me that the acronym also stands for Every Patient Deserves Surveillance, EPDS. Because every patient deserves surveillance. If you see a patient with erosipustular dermatosis of the scalp, see them back after a month. Make sure they've had a really nice response to your clobetazole or your tacrolimus or whatever you're choosing. And if they haven't, Ask yourself, is this 
an evidence-based gold medal treatment, a, a level one, tier one treatment, or am I using something that has no evidence? And if they haven't responded, ask yourself, gee, maybe this isn't a rosopustular dermatosis of the scalp. Maybe this is a blistering disorder. Maybe this is a deep fungal infection. Maybe this is massive hyperkeratotic actinic keratosis. Maybe this is squamous cell carcinoma. But then see the patient back often. Surveillance is critical for the patient with a rosopustular dermatosis. And the authors remind us here that we need close surveillance especially when there's lesions of erosopustular dermatosis that don't seem to respond fully to, to treatment. If there's a lesion that's re remaining, a lesion that's growing, a lesion that remains somewhat nodular, maybe it was erosopustular dermatosis of the scalp, and you were right, but maybe there was coexistent squamous cell carcinoma or basal cell carcinoma or something else. 50% of these patients are likely to develop a skin cancer in the first few years. And overall, about 80% of patients with a rosopustular dermatosis are predicted to develop some kind of skin cancer in their journey, before, after. So thinking skin cancer is essential in the patient with a rosopustular dermatosis because it is going to be part of their journey in at least 80% of patients. There is a lot of number 50s in this study. 50% 50 of patients had skin cancer before their diagnosis. 50% have skin cancer after their diagnosis. 50% of cancers develop within three years. And all in all, the authors propose that a rosopustular dermatosis of the scalp may be a marker of sun damage. And we need to be thinking about non-melanoma skin cancer and other skin cancers in this particular disease. So finally, we end with a very nice study by Sarkis and colleagues titled Folliculitis Decalvans in Women, a retrospective, multi-center study of 150 patients. Multi-center, 10 different countries were involved in this study, 150 patients in the world of Folliculitis Decalvans. That is a huge study. So folliculitis decalvans is a scarring alopecia that affects males and females. It's certainly not as common as lichen planopilaris. It's certainly underdiagnosed. But probably 1 in 15,000 people have folliculitis decalvans. Males tend to be slightly more affected than females. And in some studies, the ratio is 1.5 to 1. In some studies, 2 to 1. Some studies, 3 to 1 but just slightly more common in males. Patients often present with a folliculitis that scars. And so it's often misdiagnosed as folliculitis. But then there's areas on the scalp that are found to be leaving behind a patch of scarring. And someone puts the two together and realizes, maybe this isn't typical folliculitis. But patients often have itching and burning and tenderness and sometimes bleeding and they wake up with blood on their pillow and crusting may be present. It often affects the vertex of the scalp. And there's often, in males, androgenetic hair loss present. So here we have this nice study in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. But before we review the Sarkis study, let's talk about a study which predated this 
Dr. Vanyo's study from 2015 in the same journal, titled Folliculitis decalvans, a multi-center review of 82 patients. Really important to understand Dr. Vanyo's study. It was a very nice study, the largest of its kind, up until Sarkis published their paper. But it is a study that the authors Sarkis and colleagues reference. So we need to understand Dr. Vanyo's study. In 2015, Dr. Vanyo and colleagues set out to retrospectively review their data of folliculitis decalvans management and demographic features in patients from Spain. There was 82 patients in their study, 52 males, 30 females. So there were males and females in this study. Mean age was 35. The vertex was the most common site. No significant comorbidities in this patient group. Itching, pain, tufted hairs, pustules were part of the disease in some patients, but not in every single patient. What Dr. Vanyo found is that compared to females, males were more likely to have a younger age at the time of diagnosis, by about 10 years, more likely to have pustules, more likely to have androgenetic alopecia, and more likely to have a family history. And that was pretty much it. Males and females had a similar prevalence of pain in the scalp, similar prevalence of tufted hairs, similar prevalence of severity grading. In other words, the disease was just as severe in females as it was in males. If you're not familiar with folliculitis decalvans grading, let's just speak about that now. Grade 1 folliculitis decalvans means the largest patch is less than 2 centimeters in diameter. Grade 2 means the largest patch is somewhere 2 to 5 centimeters. And grade 3 means the largest patch has a diameter of 5 centimeters or more. In this study by Dr. Vanyo and colleagues, 40% had grade 1, 40% had grade 2, 20% had grade 3. Grade 1 disease was pretty similar in males and females. Grade 2 disease was pretty similar in males and females. Grade 3 was pretty similar in males and females. So that's important. We're going to come back to that when we talk about the Sarkis study. So Sarkis and colleagues performed a retrospective study assessing folliculitis decalvans in females. Authors from 10 different countries submitted data, and this allowed the collection of 150 patients. The mean age of disease here was 38.9 as the age of onset, similar to Dr. Vanyo's study. 88% of women in this study had Caucasian hair, 12% had Afro-textured hair. These were women from Brazil that had type 5-6 skin with the Afro-textured hair. The vertex was involved in 81% of patients, and the mid-scalp was involved in 42% of patients. 93% had scalp redness, 90% had itching, 60% had pustules, 54% had pain. Treatments included topical antibiotics in 73%, oral antibiotics in 71.8%, topical steroids in 59%, and steroid injections 
were used in 45% of patients. So was folliculitis decalvans in women more severe than in males? Well, the authors compared their data in the 150 women to the 2015 Dr. Vagno study. And they propose that folliculitis decalvans in females is more severe, more widespread, and more frequently has pain itching than in males. So Sarkis and colleagues look at the 2015 Vanyu study and they find that their 150 female patients have a greater prevalence of other autoimmune scalp diseases going on, a more likely location on the vertex, more likely location on the mid-scalp. They propose that Grade 3 severity was more common in their study. In Dr. Vagno's study, it was around 20%. Here, 53% of their 150 patients had grade 3 disease. Itching and pain were more common as well. So it's an interesting study. It's the largest of folliculitis decalvans to date. But it's hard to know with 100% certainty if the clinical features of folliculitis decalvans in women are different than in males. This study didn't set out to compare folliculitis decalvans in males. It set out to compare, to evaluate folliculitis decalvans in females. But certainly there's a suggestion that it's different in females, and probably it is. But the data they compare to is the 2015 Vanyo study. So there's limitations in doing this. So first, Sarkis and colleagues compare all their data to a mixed group of males and females when they look at the Vanyo study. So they don't look exclusively at the female data from the Vanyo study. And the thing not to forget is that Dr. Vanyo didn't find any differences between males and females in terms of itching and pain or severity. But it was a smaller study. Just 30 females, 52 males. The only thing Dr. Vagno found is that males were more likely to have androgenetic hair loss, more likely to have pustules. And so it would seem that it's possible that females with folliculitis decalvans have a different type of folliculitis decalvans than males. More vertex, more mid-scalp involvement, more pain, more burning, more severity. It's possible, but it's hard to know for sure. Clearly, we don't have all the answers here. I think geography probably does matter. Vanyo's study is a study of 82 patients from various centers in Spain. Sarkis study is also a multi-center study, but from 10 different countries. Does this kind of thing matter? Well, when it comes to hair diseases, it probably does. It probably matters a lot. Is FFA in Asian populations different than in other populations? It sure is. Is FFA in black women different than FFA in white women? It sure is. Is dissecting cellulitis in Brazil different than dissecting cellulitis in Sweden? It sure is. 
Is folliculitis decal vans in Europe different than folliculitis decal vans in Brazil? It probably is. The Sarkis study had 150 patients from 10 different countries, including 12 patients from Brazil with Afro-textured hair. Does it matter? Probably. What is the impact of geography? Well, different countries, different backgrounds, different genetics. We know that people living in different countries with different genetic backgrounds have different skin microbiome, for one. And the skin microbiome plays a key role in folliculitis decalvans. It certainly could be that women with darker colored skin have different folliculitis decalvans characteristics than patients with lighter colored skin. That's not a huge stretch. In my experience caring for males and females with folliculitis decalvans with darker skin types, crusting, pustules, bleeding is much more common. Could it be that folliculitis decalvans in women with lighter colored skin is different than in women with darker colored skin? Absolutely it could be. The second point is these are retrospective studies. Retrospective studies are challenging. You're asking researchers from 10 different countries to pull up data, which is often incomplete. And we know the retrospective data is challenging. Vanyo's study was retrospective. Sarkis' study is retrospective. So we're comparing two retrospective studies, each with their own set of limitations. Could these impact the results? It sure could. But all in all, there's some degree of suggestion here in this very nice study that maybe, just maybe, folliculitis decalvans in females more commonly affects the mid-scalp, has quite a high incidence of pain, tenderness, and maybe, just maybe, it's more likely to be a severe type. I think we need more data, comparative data from other studies, other authors. That's how good science is done. But this is a really nice study. 150 patients with folliculitis decalvans. That's a pretty heroic effort. And I think this is wonderful that we now have a study like this. To build their case that folliculitis decalvans is more severe in females, the authors state that steroid injections were performed in about 45% of patients in their study much higher than in the Vanyo study, where it was performed in only 15% of patients. It's hard to compare treatments across different countries. Certain countries have different protocols, protocols for various diseases. So there's a lot more dutasteride mesotherapy in Spain than you'll find in Canada. There's a lot more this protocol than that protocol in, in certain countries. There absolutely are country-specific protocols for treating diseases. A hundred percent there are. You speak with colleagues from Poland or Sweden or Brazil or Australia. You'll hear common themes. We don't do that here. We do that here. So there is some regional-specific treatment protocols. And that plays into a study like this. So when 45% of patients in the Sarkis study get steroid injections, and only 15% in Vanyo's study get steroid injections, it's tempting to say, wow, so many patients got steroid injections in the Sarkis study. Must be severe disease. It's hard to make that conclusion. There's these regional differences. But all in all, it's a really nice study. It would be wonderful as an extension to compare folliculitis decalvans data in women from Brazil with darker skin types to women with lighter skin types. That would be extremely helpful. I'm sure there would be differences. I suspect that the phenotype in darker skin types 
has a chance of being more severe. Certainly in Canada, many of our patients with darker skin types, males and females, are more likely to have significant redness that persists, postules, and larger areas or greater severity. So I think that's a, a something that could be done. As I mentioned last week, I'm a splitter, not a lumper. So when I think of folliculitis decalvans, someone says the word folliculitis decalvans to me, there's a folliculitis decalvans phenotype in different scenarios. There's folliculitis decalvans in white males that's different than in skin of color. Same in women. There's a folliculitis decalvans associated with staph aureus. That's the most common. But there's a folliculitis decalvans associated with other organisms. There's a folliculitis decalvans associated with lichen plano pilaris. The lichen plano pilaris folliculitis decalvans phenotypic spectrum. And then there's folliculitis decalvans that has no tendency to ever want to become lichen plano pilaris. And then there's folliculitis decalvans associated with drugs like the EGF inhibitors. There's all these phenotypes of folliculitis decalvans. And so there's not one type of folliculitis decalvans. So is it a big stretch to think there's a folliculitis decalvans in women of lighter colored skin that's slightly different than folliculitis decalvans in darker skin types? Not really. Is it possible that there's a different type of folliculitis decalvans in women than in males? Absolutely, it's possible. And I thank these authors for bringing this study to us. We have Vanyo's study saying, not too different. Males and females are fairly similar. Males have more pustules. Males have more androgenetic hair loss, but not too different. We have this study by Sarkis saying, it's different. How wonderful it would be for those 82 patients from Dr. Vanyo's study, where there doesn't seem to be too many differences in males and females, to be compared 10 years later to see where things are at. Do females from Vanyo's study go on to develop more severe disease? Who knows? Very nice study. The Sarkis study is not so much a study looking at treatments and how well treatments work. The Vanyo study did look at that. The Sarkis study says this is the treatments that were used. It doesn't give us an indication of how well they were used, but it is a very nice study giving us a sense of some of the features of folliculitis decalvans in females. And I thank the authors for this very, very nice study. And so that brings us to the end of Season 5, Episode 5. I thank you so much for joining me today. We reviewed a very nice study by Anamusi and colleagues in the Archives of Dermatologic Research. Clinical factors associated with good outcomes in CCCA included the use of natural hairstyles, use of hooded dryers, and the use of metformin if patients had diabetes. Scaling and pustules predicted poor outcomes. We looked at the largest study of CCCA in males, 17 males in the study by Jackson and colleagues in the JAD from July. We looked at a very nice study by Mello and colleagues discussing the positive antigen pull test. We don't often see antigen hairs when we gently pull hairs, but when you do, consider the possibility of a scarring alopecia. The interface dermatitis makes it hard for those precious hairs to grow and they fall out. And so to see what an antigen hair is, pull hard on your own hairs and look under your dermatoscope and see what they look like. You'll come to realize very readily what an antigen hair looks like. And then gently pull your hair and see what a telogen hair looks like. And you'll become quite good at differentiating antigen and telogen hairs. Then we looked at a nice study by Shamlul and colleagues in the JAD from June, looking at erosipustular dermatosis and the risk of skin cancer. A very nice study of not one patient, not two patients, not eight or six or 10, but 80 patients 
53 males, 27 females, 50% had a history of skin cancer before their diagnosis of a erosive pustular dermatosis. 50% went on to have skin cancers after their diagnosis of erosive pustular dermatosis. And in 50% of patients, the skin cancer arose within the first three years in those that developed a cancer, mostly squamous cell, but some basal cell and others as well. Then we talked about this very nice study by Sarkis and colleagues, Folliculitis decalvans in 150 females, and we talked in depth about Sarkis study and Vigno's study. Important to be aware of both. Sarkis proposing that folliculitis decalvans in females is more severe than in males, potentially. More likely to affect the mid-scalp and vertex, more pain, more itching, greater prevalence of severe grade 3 severity. Vigno's 2015 study suggesting doesn't seem to be different in severity in males and females, and not too different in symptoms. And so that brings us to the end of today's episode. Before I leave, I would like to remind you about the Evidence-Based Hair Fellowship for those that are interested, and I thank everyone for their interest. If you're a hair loss practitioner, perhaps a dermatologist or hair transplant surgeon or family physician that sees hair loss or cosmetic physician, or if you're a resident or trainee or fellow and you'd like to dive in and study hair loss in greater depth with me, you might consider applying for our evidence-based hair fellowship. Deadline is December the 1st, 2023. We meet virtually once a week for 87 weeks from January 2024 to August 2025. It's a fun and intensive program that helps mold and sculpt participants into a hair loss expert. With knowledge and skills to engage in lifelong, evidence-based, patient-centered practice. It's a unique program that trains participants how to problem solve and how to think critically in this world of hair loss. You'll be solving problems. You'll be thinking inside the box and you'll be thinking outside the box during your time in the program with the hope that this all becomes second nature when I say goodbye at the end of August, 2025. And we start the second iteration in January 2026. Details about the program and everything you need to know about it are found on our website at donovanmedical.com forward slash donovan hair academy or on our YouTube channel at Donovan Medical. You'll see an introduction to the program there. But that's it for this week. Next week, we're back. It'll be the last Monday of the month of August, and we are talking about a potpourri of different studies that have been published in the last few months, and I hope you'll join me then. Thanks again for joining me today. Bye for now.